When we ask ourselves whether Muhammad was a prophet, we're asking whether his revelations really came from God. In this lecture, we're going to look at three arguments which, when taken together, provide strong evidence that Muhammad was not getting his information from God. Here we'll examine the argument from historical inaccuracy. Muhammad got so many historical facts wrong, his teachings couldn't have been from God. Then we'll look at the argument from religious plagiarism. Muhammad was copying the stories of the people around him and therefore not getting them from God. And finally, we'll take a brief look at what I can only call the argument from silly teachings. Some of Muhammad's teachings were so silly, it's incredibly difficult to believe that they come from God. Now let's turn to the argument from historical inaccuracy. We saw in a previous lecture that some Muslim apologists actually claim that Muhammad was so accurate historically that he must have been getting his revelations from God. And we saw that the evidence they offer is extremely weak. Now, if you'd like an example of how accurate Muhammad really was when it comes to history, let's consider his confusion of two biblical Marys. In Arabic, the word for Mary, i.e. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the same as the word for Miriam, i.e. Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. We know that these two Marys are different people. And yet Muhammad didn't. In Surah 19, 27 through 28, in a passage about Mary, the mother of Jesus, we read, At length she brought the babe to her people, carrying him in her arms. They said, O Mary, truly an amazing thing hast thou brought, O sister of Aaron. Thy father was not a man of evil, nor thy mother a woman unchaste. Notice that the Quran refers to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the sister of Aaron, i.e. Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. This is a major blunder. And Christians, during the time of Muhammad, recognized this error and pointed it out to the Muslims. So Muhammad actually had a chance to respond. We can read his response in Sahih Muslim 53.26. Mugira said, When I came to Nadran, they, the Christians of Nadran, asked me, You read, O sister of Aaron, in the Quran, whereas Moses was much before Jesus. So they were actually making fun of the Muslims for this blunder in the Quran. When I came back to Allah's messenger, I asked him about that, whereupon he said, The people of the old age used to give names to their persons after the names of apostles and pious persons who had gone before them. So Muhammad's response is that the people during the time of Mary would refer to a pious young woman as the sister of so-and-so, where so-and-so might be a prophet from 1,400 years earlier. And we don't even... Um, the problem that here is that we have no such record of any such practice in first century Israel, despite the fact that we have uh, a lot of uh, Christian and Jewish records from the first century. Uh, another problem is that we don't even find this practice in the Quran. So Muhammad is saying that this was a common practice, and yet we don't even find it used elsewhere in the Quran. So if we don't find this practice anywhere, and yet Muhammad was saying it's a common practice, this certainly seems to indicate a problem with his explanation. The obvious conclusion then is that Muhammad simply made a mistake and that he tried to correct it by making something up. But we can go further. Two points are worthy of note in the hadith from Sahih Muslim. First, the Christians of Najran knew nothing of the practice of referring to a pious young woman as the sister of some prophet uh, because they, serious, they thought this was a serious problem on the part of uh, the Quran. 
So they weren't familiar with any kind of figure of speech like this. Second, the Muslim who talked to them obviously didn't know that this was a figure of speech, since he was stumped by the refutation and had to go back to Muhammad for an answer. So Christians knew nothing of the practice Muhammad referred to, and Muslims who had been reciting the Quran in the presence of Muhammad were never told that Sister of Aaron was a metaphor. Indeed, they only learned about this when they went out and talked to some Christians. But things get even worse. According to 1 Chronicles 6, the father of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam was a man named Amran. In Arabic, his name is Imran. So if Muhammad really believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the same uh, person as Mary, the uh, sister of Aaron and Moses, it wouldn't surprise us to find Muhammad referring to her as the daughter of Imran. Not surprisingly, this is exactly what we find in the Quran and the Hadith. Surah 3, 35-36, talks about the birth of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It reads, Behold, when the wife of Imran said, O my Lord, I do dedicate unto thee what is in my womb for thy special service. So accept this of me, for thou hearest and knowest all things. When she was delivered, she said, O my Lord, behold, I am delivered of a female child. And Allah knew best what she brought forth. And no wise is the male like the female. I have named her Mary, and I commend her and her offspring to thy protection from the evil one, the rejected. And in Sahih al-Bukhari 3769 we read, Allah's messenger said, Many amongst men attained perfection, but amongst women none attained the perfection except Mary, the daughter of Imran, and Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh. So Mary's mother is called the wife of Imran, and Mary is called the daughter of Imran and the sister of Aaron. This is an amazing coincidence because there was, again, another biblical Mary, a completely different person, who was the sister of Aaron and the daughter of Imran and whose mother was the wife of Imran. Since Mary, the mother of Jesus, wasn't the sister of Aaron or the daughter of Imran, the only reasonable conclusion to draw from this is that Muhammad just didn't know that Mary and Miriam were two completely different people who lived more than a thousand years apart. This is a clear error on Muhammad's part. Now, there are plenty of other historical errors we could look at, and we'll be seeing some more examples of historical errors when we examine the next argument. But right now, I'd like to focus on Jesus' death and resurrection, since we're Christians. Um, and I know we've addressed uh, this in other uh, lectures, but I'd like to lay out a complete case for Jesus' crucifixion, the evidence behind it, and at least an outline of Jesus' resurrection from the dead so that we can see how strong the historical evidence is and how uh, clearly an error Muhammad must be for rejecting them. So let's begin with some of the ancient Christian sources that scholars consider when they investigate Jesus' crucifixion. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, report the death of Jesus, and these are all unquestionably first-century sources. I would put the Gospel of Mark somewhere in the 50s at the latest, and some scholars date the pre-Mark and Passion narrative to within seven years of Jesus' crucifixion. Apart from the four Gospels, other writers of the New Testament confirm Jesus' crucifixion and death, including Paul, Peter, and the author of Hebrews. We also know from some ancient 
Uh, we also know some ancient Christian creeds that predate the writing of the New Testament. The most important early creed is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Even non-Christian scholars date this to within about five years of Jesus' crucifixion. And many date it even earlier. For instance, Marcus Borg of the Jesus Seminar says that this creed was composed within months of Jesus' crucifixion. So this is extremely early material. And what does our earliest material say? It says, quote, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This was the official teaching of the early church. It was the official teaching of Jesus' disciples. But suppose we want to be unimaginably critical of the Gospels and even of the early creeds that predate the Gospels. Here we can turn to the second generation of Christian leaders, which included, like, which included people like Papias, Ignatius, Clement of Rome, and Polycarp. We have writings and quotations from these men, and this is important because some of them knew the apostles. Polycarp, for instance, was a disciple of the apostle John. So what do we find when we turn to these writings? Well, all we ever find is confirmation of the New Testament position that Jesus died on the cross. But even if we decide to throw out all Christian testimony, we would still have to conclude that Jesus died by crucifixion because we can establish Jesus' death using non-Christian sources. We know that the first century historian Thallus was aware of Jesus' execution because in 52 AD, just 20 years after Jesus' death, Thallus tried to explain the darkness that covered the land during Jesus' crucifixion. Later in the first century, the Jewish historian Josephus, in book 18 of his Antiquities, mentions Jesus' death and crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Not long after that, the Roman historian Tacitus, in book 15 of his Annals, also says that Jesus was executed during the reign of Pontius Pilate. We could go on to discuss other sources, Marabar Serapion, Lucian of Samosata, the Talmud, the writings of heretical groups, and so on. But it, would be, uh, it should be clear by now that the evidence we have tells us unanimously that Jesus died by crucifixion. But things get worse for Muslims because when we combine our historical knowledge of Roman crucifixion with modern medical knowledge, any theory suggesting that Jesus didn't die start to sound absurd. Prior to crucifixion, Romans would scourge their victims with a flagrum, which was made of leather thongs um, with chunks of bone and metal woven into them. We have historical records reporting what a flagrum would do to people. When we talk about Roman scourging, we're not talking about people getting a few lashes with a whip. We have ancient reports of people being beaten until their arteries and veins were exposed. Josephus writes about people being flogged until their bones were showing or until their intestines spilled out. Given the severity of flogging, we can see why the first century philosopher Seneca described victims of crucifixion as battered, misshapen, and deformed. The flogging, by the way, was referred to as the half-death because by the time the Romans finished flogging you, you were already half-dead. After the scourging came the crucifixion, depending on the severity of the scourging and on how long the Romans wanted to keep you on the cross, uh, death could sometimes take up to a few days. But if they were in a rush, they had ways of speeding up the process. They could give you a more severe, give you a more severe beating or just break a person's legs so that he couldn't push himself up to breathe. You see, after hanging for a while with your arms stretched out in the crucified position, by the way, you can test this yourself, 
you could go hang on some monkey bars for a while and watch. You'll eventually start getting short on breath. And if you hang on long enough, you'll actually pass out. Uh, after a while, if hanging in that position, your muscles start to give out and breathing becomes extremely difficult. Your lungs fill up with air, but you can't exhale. And so what you have to do if you're in the crucified position is push yourself up on your feet, which have been pierced with a nail, and that's the reason for putting the nail through the heels was so that people could push themselves up in order to breathe. And so if you're crucified, you have to keep doing this. You hang until you're completely out of breath and you need to breathe, and then you push up on your pierced feet. And, of course, the nail is going through various nerves. You can't keep this up, and so eventually you have to drop drop yourself back down, and shortly you run out of air once again. And so up and down, up and down, up and down. Again, some people kept this up for days. But eventually everyone will lose consciousness and die of asphyxiation. So once you stop pushing yourself up to breathe, the Roman soldiers would know that you're dead. Once you've gone half an hour, they're sure you're dead. If you've gone longer than that, they're absolutely positive that you're dead. There's no longer any room for doubt. But the Romans didn't take crucifixion lightly. So even after they were convinced that a crucified victim was dead, they would add a death blow just in case. We know historically that the Romans would smash people's heads in. They would stab people with a sword or a spear. They would set people on fire. They would let wild animals rip them apart. The type of death blow was up to the guards on duty, but one way or another, they made absolutely sure they were made absolutely sure that the victims were dead. Now, when we consider the Roman practices of scourging, crucifixion, and the death blow, we can see why a research team writing for the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986 concluded their article by saying that, quote, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So if Jesus was put up on that cross, there was absolutely no way he could have come down alive. Given the overwhelming evidence, it should come as no surprise that there is a consensus among scholars that Jesus died on the cross. Recently, Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the world's leading authorities on the historical Jesus, uh, completed a study of more than 2,700 modern scholarly works on the resurrection of Jesus. He added up the data and found that there are certain facts that just about all scholars agree on, and Jesus' death by crucifixion was at the top of the list. All scholars, whether conservative Christian, uh, liberal Christian, Jewish, atheistic, or agnostic, virtually all scholars agree that Jesus died by crucifixion. Let's look briefly at what some non-Christian scholars have to say about Jesus' death. The atheist New Testament scholar Gert Ludemann declares that Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. What does he say? That it's uh, open to uh, argument? No, it's indisputable. John Dominic Crossan of the infamous Jesus Seminar says that there is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. According to Crossan, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Marcus Borg, another member of the Jesus Seminar, states that Jesus' execution is the most certain fact about the historical Jesus. Jewish scholar Giza Vermes says that the passion of Jesus is part of history. The passion is the series of events leading up to and including Jesus' death by crucifixion. 
Another Jewish scholar, Pincus Lapid, concludes that Jesus' death by crucifixion is historically certain. According to Paula Fredrickson, the single most, the single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion. And since Muslims are growing increasingly fond of Bart Ehrman, here's what Ehrman says. One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying when I quote non-Christian scholars. I'm not saying that we should believe whatever non-Christian scholars say. I think that uh, many non-Christian scholars are very biased when they discuss Christianity. I'm simply pointing out the fact that on this issue, Jesus' crucifixion and death, even anti-Christian scholars agree with the Christian view. Not only do they agree with us, they say that Jesus' death by crucifixion is, as we've seen, indisputable, that it's historically certain, that it's one of the most certain facts of history. Now, whenever people of diverse theological backgrounds agree on something about Jesus, there must be a good reason for it. That Jesus died by crucifixion is the only view that makes sense of the evidence. And yet, Muslims have somehow convinced themselves that Jesus didn't die on the cross. We've, uh, we've, we've uh, covered these here and there, uh, but let's look at uh, two ways that Muslims attempt to defend Muhammad's view. The traditional Muslim explanation for the historical evidence is that God tricked everyone into thinking that Jesus died by crucifixion. According to this view, when the Jews got mad at Jesus, God took Jesus out of this world into heaven. Then God, again, disguised Judas to make him look like Jesus so that everyone thought that Jesus was being crucified, even though it was really Judas. So on the Muslim view, the reason that all of the historical evidence tells us that Jesus died by crucifixion is because God did such a wonderful job tricking everyone. Now my question for Muslims is simply, why? I've never seen a Muslim explanation for why God tricked everyone, why God deceived everyone into believing that Jesus died by crucifixion when he didn't. And Islam has a problem here. Because according to the Quran, Jesus' followers were good Muslims. And yet even they were ultimately deceived by God's cosmic trick. Now, if Christians got their false views from God, and even historians today across the theological spectrum all believe that Jesus' death by crucifixion is one of the best established facts of history, we have God behind um, what can only be considered the greatest deception in history. Now, explanations like this somehow make sense in the context of Islam. But this view is hard to accept if you're not already a Muslim, uh, and especially if you don't believe that God goes around tricking people for no reason and starting false religions in the process. And yet Muslims are really forced into making claims of this sort because Muhammad said things that just do not make sense in light of the evidence. We see this over and over again in the Quran and the other Muslim sources. History is a massive problem for Islam. Interestingly enough, Muslims now recognize, some Muslims anyway, some Muslims now recognize how absurd it is to say that Jesus was not crucified. Uh, and they say this despite the fact that the Quran declares quite clearly that Jesus was not crucified. And so Muslim apologists like 
Shabir Ali now claim that Jesus was crucified, but he just didn't die. According to this modified Muslim explanation, God miraculously kept Jesus alive while he was on the cross. So when Jesus was being beaten until his flesh was hanging like ribbons from his back and punched in the face, repeatedly and nailed to the cross and pierced by a spear, God made sure Jesus survived all of it. And then after Jesus had endured the worst torture ever invented by human beings for no reason at all, then God took Jesus to himself. Now, what's wrong with this view? might be better to ask what's not wrong with this view. First, the only appealing aspect of the traditional Muslim view that Jesus was replaced by Judas is that Jesus was rescued from harm. Now, the traditional view is flawed in every other conceivable way, but at least Jesus wasn't hurt according to the traditional Muslim view. That's something. But the modified Muslim view doesn't even have that going for it. People torture Jesus horribly, and God allows it, for no reason whatsoever. Then, once Jesus has been tortured and people think they've killed him, only then does God rescue him. Seems that this divine rescue came a few hours too late. Second, on the modified Muslim explanation, God still turns out to be a deceiver. God still tricks everyone into believing that Jesus died, and God still either, either directly or indirectly helps start Christianity, which, according to Islam, is the world's largest false religion. Third, this view is totally contrary to the Quran, which declares that they killed him not, nor crucified him. If Muslims are going to reject Muhammad's claim that Jesus wasn't crucified, why not go all the way and, and reject Muhammad's claim that he never died? Indeed, why not reject the entire Quran if you're going to start rejecting parts of it? So it's clear that we have no reason to accept the Muslim explanations and that uh, they raise more problems than they attempt to solve. Appealing to God as a cosmic trickster just isn't a satisfying response. If you're willing to go that far to avoid the evidence, you could explain anything away. Um, you may think that I'm standing in front of the camera right now giving a lecture. What if I told you that God is simply tricking you into thinking that I'm standing in front of a camera uh, giving a lecture? What sort of explanation is that? And yet, these are the sorts of explanations that are at the very heart of the Quran. To sum up, we have two hypotheses before us, the Christian hypothesis and the Muslim hypothesis. According to the Christian hypothesis, Jesus died by crucifixion. Our view is supported by Old Testament prophecy, all of the historical sources, all our knowledge of Roman crucifixion, and a consensus among scholars. According to the Muslim hypothesis, Jesus wasn't killed, and he may or may not have been crucified, depending on how seriously you take the Quran. This view is supported by nothing, and there are tons of problems with it. So which hypothesis should we accept? Should we accept a hypothesis supported by historical evidence and scholarly consensus? Or should we accept a hypothesis that is supported by no evidence and that portrays God as a deceiver? Even to ask the question is to answer it. Jesus died, and to deny this is to display an utter bias against history and reason. The only question that remains then is whether we have good evidence that Jesus was alive again after he died by crucifixion. And let's consider three important facts, and we can look at the implications. Fact number one, 
On the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was empty. We find this recorded in all four Gospels, including the Markan Passion narrative. But several other lines of evidence supports the historicity of the empty tomb story. First, we know that our earliest that the earliest Christian preaching took place in Jerusalem and that the earliest Christian message was that Jesus had risen from the dead. But it would have been impossible for Christians to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem if Jesus' body were still in the tomb. Second, even Jesus' opponents admitted that the tomb was empty. We know this because the earliest non-Christian response to the Christian message was that the disciples had stolen the body. But if non-Christians were trying to explain why the tomb was empty, they must have known that there was an empty tomb that needed to be accounted for. We now know, of course, that the disciples couldn't have stolen Jesus' body because many of these same disciples were later martyred for their claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And surely they wouldn't have suffered martyrdom for their claim that Jesus had risen from the dead if they knew that it was a lie. Third, according to our earliest accounts, the empty tomb was discovered by women. Some scholars believe that this is the strongest evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. In first century Israel, the testimony of women was not considered reliable. And so it makes sense, if Christians were going to invent the story of the empty tomb for whatever reason, that they wouldn't put women, they wouldn't make women the primary witnesses. And actually in the, first, in the second century, Christians were made fun of for, because women were the earliest discoverers of the empty tomb. So the idea here is that if people are going to make something up, they're going to make it up so that uh, the evidence really supports their view. So the only explanation for why Christians would say that women discovered the empty tomb is if that's just the way that happened. That's just the way it happened. If they were lying for some reason, they would have said that Peter or James discovered the empty tomb. Putting all this together, uh, the only reasonable explanation for the facts is that the tomb of Jesus really was empty on the third day after his execution. Fact number two, Jesus' followers were convinced that he had appeared to them, risen from the dead. Although scholars certainly don't all agree that Jesus returned to life, almost everyone does admit that Jesus' followers believed that he had been resurrected. In the study I talked about a moment ago, Habermas found that the vast majority of scholars hold that the disciples had some sort of experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Christ. Scholars disagree about the nature of these experiences. Some will say that Jesus really appeared. Some will say that his disciples must have been hallucinating. But nearly everyone agrees that the disciples sincerely believed that Jesus had appeared to them. According to Gerd Ludemann, the atheist New Testament scholar, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Likewise, Paula Fredrickson states, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know as a historian that they must have seen something. And we can't forget Bart Ehrman, who says that we can say with complete certainty that some of his disciples at some later time insisted that A, women from among their group went to anoint Jesus' body for burial and found it missing, and B, he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he had been raised from the dead. Ehrman also says that it is a historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he had been raised from the dead 
soon after his execution. Now, why do scholars agree that Jesus' disciples believed that he had been risen from the dead and had appeared to them? Well, we know from history that the apostles were preaching that Jesus had appeared to them risen from the dead. We know this from the early creed we already talked about, which says that Jesus appeared to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, to James, and to more than 500 people at one time. Again, this creed goes back to within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion. We also know from the Gospels, from the letters of Paul and other New Testament writers, and from the writings of the early church fathers, that Jesus' disciples were preaching that he had appeared to them. Not only do we know that the early Christians were preaching that Jesus had appeared to them, we also know that they weren't intentionally lying. How do we know that they weren't making this up? We know, again, because many of them were tortured and killed because they wouldn't stop proclaiming that Jesus had appeared to them risen from the dead. Now, people can die for something that's false. People do it all the time. But people at least have to believe what they're dying for. And so if the disciples were claiming that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, they must have believed this because they were willing to die for it. Fact number three. Jesus' foes were convinced that he had appeared to them. We know historically that some people who weren't followers of Jesus became Christians because they were convinced that he had appeared to them. James was Jesus' oldest brother, and he completely rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry. And yet we know from Josephus that James was later stoned to death because he wouldn't stop preaching the Christian message. So what changed James from a disbeliever to a believer? Well, we know from the early Christian creed that James was convinced that Jesus had appeared to him, risen from the dead. And we can't forget the Apostle Paul. Muslims tend to make all sorts of accusations against Paul, which I find somewhat disturbing, considering, one, that there's no evidence for the Muslim view of Paul, and two, that Paul is one of the greatest servants of God who's ever walked the planet. But what's clear from the historical evidence is that Paul was a fanatical persecutor of the early Christian church. As a Pharisee of the Shamayite sect, Paul considered the Christian message of Jesus' sacrificial death, resurrection, and deity to be absolute heresy. So Paul tried to destroy the church. But as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Paul converted because he too came to believe that Jesus had appeared to him. Now, there's lots of other evidence we could discuss, but I think we have enough just with these few facts to conclude that there is good evidence that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. We know that Jesus' tomb was found empty by some of his female followers on the Sunday after his crucifixion. We also know that both friends and foes were soon claiming that they had seen the risen Jesus. And we know that they were so convinced that Jesus had appeared to them that they were willing to endure torture and death for the privilege of proclaiming the Christian message. The question for us then is, what convinced these people that Jesus had appeared to them? And this is the question that I had to struggle with 13 years ago when I was still an atheist. I just couldn't explain away these facts. I couldn't think of any theory other than the resurrection that could account for the historical evidence. In the end, in the end I concluded that Jesus of Nazareth must have risen from the dead, and I submitted to Jesus as Lord. Now, to sum up, we've seen two competing views. Christians believe that Jesus died by crucifixion and that he rose from the dead three days later. Muslims believe that Jesus never died and that he was taken up into heaven. 
as we've seen, all of the available historical evidence, every shred of historical evidence we have supports the Christian view. There's no evidence anywhere that supports the Muslim view. Now, a person can go on believing whatever Muhammad says in spite of the overwhelming evidence against it, and if people are satisfied with believing things that are completely at odds with all of history, they can believe whatever they want to. But for those who want a belief that fits, that fits the facts, when facts are available, they'll have to look somewhere other than Islam. And I've never seen any religion that fits the facts as well as Christianity. There's simply no question then that Muhammad was wrong on some essential facts of history. Even more important, he was wrong about questions concerning Mary and Jesus. So he wasn't simply wrong about some war that took place. He was wrong about core facts concerning some of uh, God's greatest servants. Surely, if Muhammad's revelations had come from God, God would have given him the truth about people like Mary and Jesus. But he just didn't. And this certainly cast doubt on Muhammad's revelations. The next argument we're going to examine is the argument from religious plagiarism. Christianity has a lot in common with Judaism, and any true religions are going to have a lot in common with each other. Islam, as well, has some things in common with Judaism and Christianity. But in Islam, practically everything Muhammad said can be found in the writings and oral traditions of Jewish groups, heretical Christian groups, and even pagan groups. Now, it's certainly no problem for Islam if Muhammad's teachings line up with things that we know are true. But when Muhammad passes on stories that we know are false, or when he's clearly copying a story or teaching from an earlier group stories that aren't true, we have good reason to conclude that he wasn't getting his teachings from God. Here it's important to point out that many people in Muhammad's time recognized that his stories and teachings seemed to come from the stories and teachings of the people around him. And so they accused him over and over again of religious plagiarism. We even see this in the Quran. Let's look at a few passages. Surah 625. Of them, there are some who pretend to listen to thee. But we have thrown veils on their hearts so they understand it not, and deafness in their ears. If they saw every one of them, the signs, they will not believe in them, insomuch that when they come to thee, they but dispute with thee. The unbelievers say, these are nothing but tales of the ancients. Muhammad's stories were nothing but tales of other people. Surah 831. When our signs are rehearsed to them, they say, we have heard this before. If we wished, we could say the words like these. They are nothing but tales of the ancients. Surah 16, 103. We know indeed that they say, It is a man that teaches him. The tongue of him they wickedly point to is notably foreign, while this is Arabic, pure and clear. So they accused Muhammad of getting his teachings from a person that Muhammad knew. And Muhammad's response was, No, my teachings are in Arabic, and his are in a different language, as if nothing can ever be translated. Surah 25, 4 through 5, But the misbelievers say, Naught is this but a lie which he has forged, and others have helped him at it. In truth, it is they who have put forward an iniquity and a falsehood. And they say, Tales of the ancients which he has caused to be written. And they are dictated before him morning and evening. So Muhammad is just getting stories dictated to him morning and evening. Surah 68, 15, 
When to him are rehearsed our signs, tales of the ancients, he cries. Surah 83.13, when our signs are rehearsed to him, he says, tales of the ancients. So we see again and again from the Quran that people were accusing Muhammad of religious plagiarism, stealing his teachings and stories from others. Now, why was this? Well, whenever Muhammad would tell a story, the people, the people of Arabia would immediately recognize the story as something they had heard before. Let's look at a couple of examples. In our lecture on the argument for scientific accuracy, we saw that according to uh, Surah 1886, a man named Dhul al-Karnain, again, uh, probably Alexander the Great, a man named Dhul al-Karnain went so far west, he found the place where the sun sets, and he found it going down into a pool of murky water. Now, this is obviously false. You can go as far west as you want. You're never going to uh, find an endpoint, and you're never going to find a place where the sun goes down. So the question is, did Muhammad simply invent this obviously false story? Not at all. Before the time of Muhammad, there was a poem by a man named Tuba. It was circulating in Arabia. A portion of the poem reads as follows. Dual Karnain before me was a Muslim. So you know the term Muslim uh, didn't start with Muhammad. People used it before him. Dual Karnain before me was a Muslim. Conquered, king, conquered kings thronged his court. East and west he ruled. Yet he sought knowledge true from a learned sage. He saw... Where the sun sinks from view in a pool of mud and fetid slime. Before him, Bilkis, my father's sister, ruled them until the hoopoe came to her. So one day, Muhammad delivered a story about Dual Karnain, where the sun sets in a pool of murky water. And the people of Arabia would have immediately recognized this as something drawn from Tuba's poem. And so they would have accused him of getting this from someone else, not from God. Now, earlier in this lecture, we saw that Muhammad was wrong about Jesus' death. Interestingly, Muhammad was also wrong about Jesus' birth. According to Surah 19, Jesus began preaching as soon as he came out of Mary's womb. Now, the obvious difficulty here is that no one in the first century reports this, and surely the early Christians would have mentioned it if it were true. But we know where this story comes from. It comes from the Arabic infancy gospel, which scholars unanimously reject as an obvious forgery. This is a pattern we find over and over again when we examine the Quran. Muhammad tells a story, and we can trace this story back to a forgery or to some other historically inaccurate account. Let me give you another example. In the Bible, Genesis 15, we're told that God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In the Babylonian language, Ur just means city. But in the first century, a Jewish rabbi named Jonathan ben Uziel was translating Genesis 15 into Aramaic, and he came across the word Ur. Jonathan didn't know Babylonian, so he confused the Babylonian word Ur, which again means city, with the Hebrew word Ur, which means fire. This mistake caused him to mistranslate the passage. Instead of saying that God delivered Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the city of the Chaldeans, Jonathan's mistranslation said that God delivered Abraham out of the fire of the Chaldeans. Why is this important? Well, Jewish uh, writers ran with this idea of Abraham being delivered from a fire. And so the Talmud eventually contains stories in which Abraham was thrown into a fire by the Chaldeans and was miraculously rescued by God. 
Now, these stories were quite popular in Arabia during the time of Muhammad, which is crucial. Because in the Quran, Surah 21, we read about Abraham being delivered from the fire. Now, Muhammad claimed that he got this story from God, but we know as a fact of history that the story of Abraham being delivered from the fire was based on a mistranslation of the word Ur. So what makes more sense here? That God mistranslated the word Ur? Or that Muhammad was getting some of his stories from the people around him? Consider another example from Surah 5, 27 through 32. This is about Cain and Abel, and we know that Muhammad took the conclusion of his story from the Jewish Mishnah. And that he didn't do a very good job of it. The Quran reads, Recite to them the truth of the story of the two sons of Adam. Behold, they each presented a sacrifice to Allah. It was accepted from one, but not from the other. Said the latter, Be sure, I will slay thee. Surely, said the former, Allah doth accept the sacrifice of those who are righteous. If thou dost Stretch thy hand against me to slay me. It is not for me to stretch my hand against thee or to slay thee. For I do not, for I do fear Allah, the cherisher of the worlds. For me, I intend to let the draw on thy, let thee draw on thyself my sin as well as thine. For thou wilt be among the companions of the fire, and that is the reward of those who do wrong. The selfish soul of the other, led him to the murder of his brother. He murdered him and became himself one of the lost ones. Then Allah sent the raven who scratched the ground to show him how to hide the shame of his brother, how to bury his brother. Woe is me, said he. Was I, was I not even able to be, to be as this raven and to hide the shame of my brother? Then he became full of regrets. On that account, we ordained for the children of Israel that if anyone slew a person, unless it be for murder or for spreading mischief in the land, it would be as if he slew the whole people. And if anyone saved a life, it would be as if he saved the life of the whole people. Then, although there came to them our messengers with clear signs, yet even after that, many of them continued to commit excesses in the land." Notice that this last verse doesn't make any sense in context. A raven shows up to show Cain how to bury his brother. After this, it says he became full of regrets, and then there's absolutely no connection with the next verse. The next verse reads, On that account we ordained for the children of Israel that if anyone slew a person, it would be as if he slew the whole people. What in the world does this mean, on that account? On, on what account? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us the explanation, and it's drawing a conclusion. Well, in the Mishnah Sanhedrin, written centuries before the Quran, we read the following commentary on the story of Cain and Abel. As regards Cain, who killed his brother, the Lord addressing him does not say, The voice of thy brother, the voice of thy brother's blood crieth out, but the voice of his bloods, meaning not his blood alone, but that of his descendants. And this to show that since Adam was created alone, so he that kills an Israelite is, by the plural here, counted as if he had killed the world at large. And he who saves even a single Israelite is counted as if he had saved the whole world. Some of these words from the Mishnah are almost identical with what we find in the Quran. The difference is that the Mishnah connects the story of Cain and Abel to the teaching that if anyone kills a person, it's as if he killed all the people. 
The commentator bases this conclusion on the word bloods. Cain hadn't merely shed the blood of his brother, but the blood of all of Abel's descendants as well. As the Quran stands, however, Muhammad gives this story of Cain and Abel, and it concludes with the teaching about uh, the murderer murdering the whole world, but without the commentary on the word bloods to connect the two passages, the final verse simply makes no sense. It doesn't fit in with the rest of the text. It seems then that Muhammad received this story from the Jews of his day, but that he didn't manage to get all the details right, and he left out the part that connects them. The result is that the conclusion in the Quran simply doesn't follow and it doesn't make sense. Now, we can go on and on examining examples of this nature. Surah 3, 35 through 37, is clearly drawn from the ancient work titled The the Protevangelion of James the Less. Some of the stories um, about the Queen of Sheba in Surah 27 are taken from the second Targum of Esther. Even the story about someone replacing Jesus on the cross was taken from the Gnostics. Muhammad drew material from many Jewish and heretical Christian sources. But Muhammad just couldn't tell the difference between a reliable source and an unreliable source. Now, let's put all of this together. Muslims believe that the message of Islam came down from heaven. But we find all of the building blocks of the religion in the teachings and practices of the people around Mecca during the time of Muhammad, not just from the Christians and Jews, but even from the pagans. There was Jewish monotheism right there in Arabia. The Jews had also written tons of stories that were recorded in the Talmud and passed around as oral tradition. Many of these stories were based on biblical characters, but many of them were obviously fictitious. There were various teachings about Jesus and Mary that certain cults believe, things like Jesus speaking at birth, which is in the Quran. Uh, about Jesus giving life to clay birds, which is in the Quran. About Mary giving birth at the palm tree, under the palm tree, which is found in the Quran. No historian on the planet believes that these stories are authentic. But we know that various cults in Arabia during the time of Muhammad were teaching these things. And they ended up in the Quran. The Sabaeans, who are mentioned in the Quran, prayed at all five times of the day that Muslims now pray. They prayed at two additional times, um, but all five of their prayers line up with the Muslim prayers. The view of paradise held by the Persians was a vision of paradise filled with sensual delights and perpetual virgins, exactly what we find from the Muslims. The pagans of Arabia, the polytheists, performed ablutions, the ceremonial washings performed by Muslims today. They prayed facing Mecca. They took the pilgrimage to Mecca and circled the Kaaba. They kissed the black stone. And Muslims do these things today. These were all pagan practices that were very dear to the polytheistic, idol-worshipping Arabs. And they're part of Islam now. The point I'm trying to make is that if you take Jewish monotheism the heretical teachings and false stories of certain Christian cults, the prayer times of the Sabaeans, and the practices and beliefs of the pagans, and you put it all together, you get Islam. This doesn't look like something that came down from heaven. This is exactly the sort of religion we would expect to arise in 7th century Arabia. 
So how do Muslims respond to all this? Well, the only Muslim response to the fact that many of their beliefs about Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Mary were taken from earlier sources is that these earlier sources were giving at least somewhat accurate information, and that's why they line up with the Quran. So, yes, these stories uh, line up with the earlier teachings, but those earlier teachings were true. The problem here, again, is that we know these earlier historical sources were, ac- were not accurate. As we saw with the example of Abraham escaping the fire, some of them were based on mistranslations or on other errors. Uh, but they were circulating as oral tradition in Arabia during the time of Muhammad, and they ended up in the Quran, and Muslims tried to uh, escape this. But think about their answer. Suppose I come to you and I say that I'm uh, a prophet, and I'm going to tell you about events that took place in the past, the way that Muhammad was talking about events that took place in the past. Now, suppose I start telling you about the Roman, Emp- uh, the Roman Empire, and I come to you and uh, I tell you about the reign of the Emperor Commodus, And I say, then Commodus stepped into the Colosseum and the gladiator took off his mask and said, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my revenge in this life or the next. You might recognize that as something from the movie Gladiator. And suppose you said, hey, David, you're obviously stealing this from the movie Gladiator. And then I say, no, actually, uh, Gladiator just had it right. It had all the details right. Well, that might work once, but if we keep seeing this over and over and over again, if you keep seeing that everything I say about history comes from some film that came out in the last 10 years, you have a very good reason to doubt that I was getting these revelations from God. You'd think that I was getting them from Hollywood. Now, the Hollywood of Muhammad's time were the stories, the oral traditions that were being passed around, and this is exactly what we find from Muhammad. He's taking the stories, reporting them, and again, many of them simply weren't reliable. So when we combine all this, the historically historically inaccurate information with the fact that Muhammad took uh, various practices, obviously, from the pagans before him, Uh, I wouldn't say that this is a conclusive proof against the prophet of Muhammad, but it's certainly something that casts doubt on the idea that he's getting these revelations from God. With the uh, few minutes we have remaining, I'd like to look at one more quick piece of evidence against Muhammad. Um, I call this the argument from silly teachings. If you read the Quran and the Hadith, you'll find that certain teachings sound so silly it's almost impossible to believe that they're from God. Many Uh, teachings of Muhammad sound like the fables and myths of 7th century Arabia. The idea here is that the more teachings like this we find, the more reason we have to believe they were coming uh, from somewhere other than God, especially the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful creator of the universe who teaches truth. And here there are all kinds of passages we can go to in the Muslim sources. I'll simply read a few short ones from Sahih al-Bukhari to give you uh, a few examples of what I mean. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 3322. The prophet said, Angels do not enter a house which either has a dog or a picture in it. 3323. Allah's messenger ordered that dogs should be killed. 3307. Narrated Umm that the prophet ordered her to kill lizards. 3303. The prophet said, When you hear the crowing of a rooster, ask for Allah's blessing, for its crowing indicates that it has seen an angel. And when you hear the braying of a donkey, seek refuge with Allah for, from Satan, for its braying indicates that it has seen Satan. 
Number 3295, the prophet said, if any one of you rouses from sleep and performs the ablution, he should wash his nose by putting water in it and then blowing it out thrice because Satan has stayed in the upper part of his nose all night. Muhammad Musan Khan, the translator of al-Bukhari, adds a footnote here. He says, we should believe that Satan actually stays in the upper part of one's nose, though we cannot perceive how. For this is related to the unseen world of which we know nothing except what Allah tells us through his messenger. Number 1144, a man was mentioned before the prophet, and he was told that he kept on sleeping until morning and did not get up for prayer. The prophet said, Satan urinated in his ears. Number 1231, Allah's messenger said, when the call for Salat is made, Satan takes to his heels, passing wind, so that he may not hear the call to prayer. Number 3289, the prophet said, yawning is from Satan. 3273, and you should not seek to offer Salat at sunrise or sunset, for the sun rises between the two sides of the head of Satan. 3263, the prophet said, fever is from the heat of hellfire, so abate it with water. 3259, the prophet said, delay the Zur prayer till it gets cooler, for the severity of heat is from the increase of the fire of hell. When it gets hotter, it's because hell is sort of spilling over into our world. 3260, Allah's messenger said, The hellfire complained to its Lord, saying, Oh, my Lord, my different parts eat each other up. So he allowed it to take two breaths, one in the winter and the other in summer. And this is the reason for the severe heat and the bitter cold you find in weather. So the reason between the the changes of the seasons is because uh, God made two breathing holes in hell. Now, by the way, we could go on like this indefinitely, and there are actually some much more startling examples of uh, silly teachings in the Hadith, um, but I don't want to go into all of those. Uh, My point here is simply that there's something awfully human about these teachings. This doesn't sound like wisdom from God. It doesn't even sound like the work of Satan. It sounds like the folk teachings of an illiterate caravan trader in 7th century Arabia. So here again, I wouldn't call this conclusive evidence that Muhammad was a false prophet, but it's certainly something that calls his revelations into question and calls into question Muslim beliefs about his revelations. In this lecture, we've looked at three arguments against the prophet of Muhammad. We saw that Muhammad's teachings are at odds with the facts of history and that this gives us a good reason to reject him as a prophet. We saw that many of Muhammad's teachings were obviously drawn from the writings and oral traditions of the Jews, of various heretical Christian groups, and even of the pagans, and that many Muslim practices were practices of the pagans. Finally, we saw that some of Muhammad's teachings seem so completely silly, it's almost impossible to regard them as revelations of God. When we combine these arguments with the other arguments in this series against Islam, uh, along with the fact that there is no good reason to accept the Muslim arguments for Muhammad and for his prophethood, the only reasonable conclusion to draw from all of this is that Muhammad was a false prophet.